Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Out of Her Poverty. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 11, 2018. The Widow's Mite is a classic gospel story, a go-to narrative for stewardship season. Who hasn't heard the moving account of the widow who slips quietly into the temple, drops her meager offering into the treasury, and slips away? Who hasn't squirmed when a well-meaning pastor brings the story to its inevitable how-then-shall-we-live conclusion? If a desperately poor widow can give her sacrificial bit, how much more should we, so comfortably wealthy by comparison, give out of our abundance to further the Lord's work? I'll admit it, I have squirmed, but not so much because the question indicts my giving. I've squirmed because this woman's brief appearance in Mark's Gospel haunts me. Her story is sharp-edged and troubling. Something in me doesn't want her reduced to a moral or exploited for the sake of capital campaigns and annual budgets. Something in me feels indignant. I wish I knew her name. I wish I knew for sure that her real-life fierceness exceeds the piety we've imposed on her. I hope, I hope she died in peace. Died? Yes, died. She died, probably mere days after she dropped those two coins into the temple treasury. In case that's a surprise, consider again what Jesus said about her as she left the temple that day. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Greek word behind all she had to live on is bios, from which we derive biology. It means life. In other words, the widow sacrificed her whole life. As far as I can tell from reading the Gospels, Jesus wasn't given to exaggeration. If he says the woman gave everything she had, well, she gave everything she had. We know she was a widow in first-century Palestine, a woman living on the margins of her society. She had no safety net, no husband to advocate for her, no pension to draw from, no social status to hide behind. She was impoverished and vulnerable in every single way that mattered, two pennies short of the end. If I'm getting the timing right, Jesus died four days after the events in this story. I wonder if the widow did too. So here's what I mean about the troubling nature of this reading. What does it mean to applaud a destitute woman who gave her last two cents to the temple before slipping away to starve? Is this really a story of selflessness, or is it a cautionary tale about naivete? Should we cheer, weep, or complicate the question further? St. Mark prefaces the story of the widow with an account of Jesus blasting the religious leaders of his day for their greed, pomposity, and crass exploitation of the poor. Beware of the scribes, Jesus tells his followers. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. Their piety, in other words, is a sham, and the religious institution they govern is corrupt, not in any way reflective of the God the psalmist calls a father of orphans and protector of widows. Indeed, in the days leading up to the widow's last gift, Jesus offers one scathing critique after another of the economic and political exploitation he witnesses around him. He makes a mockery of Roman pomp and circumstance when he processes into Jerusalem on a donkey's back. He cleanses the temple's money-mongering with a whip. He refuses to answer the chief priests, scribes, and elders when they demand to know the source of his authority. He confounds religious leaders on taxes, indicts them with a scathing parable about a vineyard and a murdered son, defeats them on the question of resurrection, and bewilders them with riddles about his Davidic ancestry. So why on earth would he turn around and praise a woman for endangering her already tenuous life to support an institution he considers corrupt? The simple answer is he doesn't. Read the story carefully. He doesn't. 
Centuries of stewardship sermons notwithstanding, Jesus never commends the widow, applauds her self-sacrifice, or invites us to follow in her footsteps. He simply notices her and tells his disciples to notice her too. This is a moment in the story when I'd give anything to hear Jesus' tone of voice or to see the expression on his face. Is he heartbroken as he tells his disciples to peel their eyes away from the rich folks and glance in her direction instead? Is he outraged? Is he resigned? Does he tell one of his friends to run after the woman and give her some bread, or at least a drink of water? What does it mean to Jesus, mere seconds after he's described the temple leaders as devourers of widows' houses, to witness just such a widow being devoured, and worse, participating in her own devouring? Here's a telling postlude. Immediately after the widow leaves the temple, Jesus leaves too. And as he does, an odd disciple invites Jesus to admire the temple's mammoth stones and impressive buildings. Jesus' response is quick and cutting. Not one of these stones will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Ouch. I wonder if the widow is still on Jesus' mind as he predicts the destruction of the temple. He has just watched a trusting woman give her all to an indefensible institution, one that refuses to protect the poor. No edifice steeped in such injustice will stand. Back to my earlier question, should we cheer or weep in the face of this story? Or, here's a third alternative, should we call out, as Jesus did, any form of religiosity that manipulates the vulnerable into self-harm and self-destruction? Any form of piety that privileges long-winded prayers over works of compassion and liberation? Any version of Christianity that valorizes soul-killing suffering as redemptive? Any practice of faith that coddles us into apathy in the face of economic, racial, sexual, and political injustice? Jesus notices the widow. He sees what everyone else is too busy, too grand, too spiritual, and too self-absorbed to see. For me, this is the only redemptive part of the story, that Jesus' eyes are ever on the small, the insignificant, the unloved, and the hidden. What did Jesus notice? I don't know for sure, but I'll hazard some guesses. I think he noticed the widow's courage. I imagine it took quite a bit of courage for her to make her insignificant gift alongside the rich with their fistfuls of coins, even more to allow the last scraps of her security to fall out of her palms, and more still to swallow panic, desperation, and the entirely human desire to cling to life no matter what, and face her end with hope. I think Jesus noticed her dignity. Surely she had to steal herself when widowhood rendered her worthless, a person marked expendable even by the temple she loved. Surely she had to trust, in the face of all the evidence piled up around her, that her tiny gift had value in God's eyes. In her astonishing generosity, Jesus recognized a kind of power. Those two coins were her gestures of defiance. They marked her subversive resistance to dehumanization. And finally, I think Jesus noticed her vocation. Whether she knew it or not, the widow's action in the temple that day was prophetic. She was a prophet in the sense that her costly offering amounted to a holy denunciation of injustice and corruption. Without speaking a word, she spoke God's word in the ancient tradition of Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, and other Old Testament prophets. But she was also prophetic in the messianic sense because her self-sacrifice prefigured Jesus's. She too gave up her life in the face of the unjust system that exploited her. Perhaps what Jesus noticed was kinship, her story mirroring his. The widow gave everything she had to serve a world so broken it killed her. Days later, Jesus gave everything he had to redeem, restore, and renew that world. For books this week, Dan reviews 
In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History by Mitch Landrell. Mitch Landrell got a first and very bitter taste of racist politics when he was only 13 years old. That's when he received death threats as a little boy because of the progressive policies of his father, Moon Landrell, the two-term mayor of New Orleans from 1970 to 1978. Mitch was born the fifth of nine children in a deeply Catholic family. He grew up in the mixed-race neighborhood of Broadmoor, and then after law school went on to serve as a lieutenant governor of Louisiana from 2004 to 2010, and eventually, like his father, as a two-term mayor of New Orleans from 2010 to 2018. His sister Mary is a U.S. senator. Some pundits see this volume as the obligatory autobiography that's released before a presidential run. It is true that Landro has attracted national attention among some leading analysts. But taken at face value, it's also an interesting read about a life dedicated to progressive politics in the context of a city plagued with a long history of racism. New Orleans, it turns out, was home to the largest slave market in America. There are also separate chapters in this book on Louisiana's David Duke and Hurricane Katrina. Despite what he calls an idyllic childhood in a loving family, where there was never a time when issues of race were not both personal and political, Landro says it still took him 40 years of transformative awareness to finally get it. His epiphany about racism culminated in his bitterly controversial decision to remove four Confederate monuments in the heart of New Orleans, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, Pierre-Gustave Toutant Beauregard, and then a monument that honored the White League, an organization of racial militants. For the first time in his life, Landro says, he came to see these monuments not just as harmless reminders of history, but as totemic pieces about white supremacy and political symbols about a war whose purpose was to preserve slavery. The monuments sanitized history in the worst possible way. When he announced the decision to remove them in 2015, he couldn't even find a contractor that was willing to do what turned out to be deeply dangerous work. Death threats and legal challenges stalled the controversy. But on April 24, 2017, the removal began and was completed about a month later. And so for his 2018 tri centennial, New Orleans stands just a little taller and prouder, thanks to a politician who followed his conscience. For movies this week, Dan reviews Rockies, Kingdoms of the Sky. This one-hour documentary is the first of three episodes called Kingdoms of the Sky that were made by PBS in conjunction with the BBC. The superb production quality is just what you would expect. This is television at its best. The other two episodes explore Himalaya and the Andes. I watched all three movies via streaming on the PBS website. The Rocky Mountains run 3,000 miles along the spine of North America, through Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, and then into Canada to the frozen Yukon. They are a sanctuary to some of North America's iconic animals featured in this film, bighorn sheep, wolverines, wolves, mountain lions, grizzly and black bears, mule deer, elk herds, bison, and hummingbirds with a pulse of 1,000 beats per minute. The better to fly solo 3,000 miles from the Canadian north to Mexico when only a month old. They are also the historic homelands of Native American tribes, shown competing in a traditional horse relay race, and later 19th century pioneers who were drawn to the mining work. The Rockies are a land of wild extremes, massive snow melts in the spring, winds of 200 miles per hour, and a 100 degree temperature swing in a single day. As if all this natural history was not enough, the film also features mountain climber skiers, think 50 miles per hour downhill, and daredevil wingsuit flyers who jump off the Rockies' cliffs and soar like eagles. 
All three of these episodes would make for a fantastic family movie night. And lastly, for poetry this week, The Abnormal is Not Courage by Jack Gilbert. The Poles rode out from Warsaw against the German tanks on horses, rode knowing in sunlight with sabers a magnitude of beauty that allows me no peace. And yet this poem would lessen that day, question the bravery, say it's not courage, call it a passion, would say courage isn't that, not at its best. It was impossible, and with form, they rode in sunlight, were mangled. But I say courage is not the abnormal, not the marvelous act, not Macbeth with fine speeches, the worthless can manage in public or for the moment. It is too near the horse heart, the bounty of impulse, and the failure to sustain even small kindness. Not the marvelous act, but the evident conclusion of being, not strangeness, but a leap forward of the same quality, accomplishment, the even loyalty, but fresh. Not the prodigal son, nor Faustus, but Penelope, the thing steady and clear, then the crescendo, the real form, the culmination and the exceeding. Not the surprise, the amazed understanding, the marriage, not the month's rapture, not the exception, the beauty that is of many days, steady and clear. It is the normal excellence of long accomplishment. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 11th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.